you know, the Russians overestimated themselves. I think that for me, the, the first like real shock was on the very first day of the invasion, there was this air assault on Hostumel Airport outside of Kiev. And on one stand, it's like a very daring, you know, the goal is like sending the best paratroopers. Uh, they're, you know, they're going to come in a helicopter, secure the airfield, fly in, you know, a battalion of more paratroopers. And then you have this, you know, beachhead right on the doorstep of Kiev. But they did it in the middle of the day. And that's insane. You don't do an air assault with helicopters is insanely risky. And to me, that said, they don't have night vision goggles, even for their Interesting. even for their pilots, like much less like their infantry personnel, like they're even their pilots, their best pilots don't have night vision goggles or they would never do this operation this way. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And once again, we have yet another fantastic episode for you guys. But before I tell you about who we have on today, uh, go to AmericanMoment.org slash A-M-C-A-N-O-N. Jake has been very hard at work uh, refreshing our collection of books, essays, podcasts, YouTube videos, and short pieces that sort of form the, the basis of, of what we think about here at American Moment. He's redone the categories, has added a bunch of new stuff. It's really interesting. Uh, chances are you'll find something that you wish you had read a long time ago, but that you had just happened to miss because there's a lot of junk content out there. So kudos to him for, for putting in a ton of hard work for that uh, and in general keeping the website looking spiffy. Uh, you can find everything else we have cooking at AmericanMoment.org as well. And uh, be sure to rate and review this podcast five stars. It really does help us get more incredible guests like the one we had today. Uh, today we had on John Asconis, who is, or Asconis, I think is how it's correctly pronounced. Uh, he is a assistant professor of politics at the Catholic University of America and one of the smartest people we know. Um, he has uh, done a ton of stuff at the intersection of political theory, technology, national security. He's currently working on two books, A Muse of Fire, Why the U.S. Military Forgets What It Learns in War, um, and A Shot in the Dark, A History of the U.S. Army Asymmetric Warfare Group. Um, he is just a total polymath. I mean, he he knows something about almost everything it feels like. And we had a fantastic discussion about um, mostly two things, um, really three. One is uh, the state of the Russian-Ukrainian war. Uh, he was a, uh, a Russian um, studies person when he was in, in undergrad and I think in his uh, advanced degrees as well, uh, speaks the language, understands intimately how Russian politics actually works. And so he has an absolutely fantastic breakdown of the state of the war where it is right now. We're taping this just a few days before the episode came out. So this is all funky, fresh information. Um, and then we kind of blended seamlessly into a conversation about technology and why conservatism failed to recognize that um, any technological innovation has much more of an impact on the world around us than whatever, you know, German lib cooked up an idea in some university somewhere. Uh, the marketplace of ideas is way too over-indexed on the right, um, and he makes a compelling case that technological development, a fundamentally material concern, is much more to do with what 
the world around us is actually like. It was a very fascinating discussion. We went long and we we had just the best time. Uh, we think very highly of John. You may have heard a baby crying in the background. That was his. Um, uh, we are pronatal here on American Moments. So uh, we, we summoned forth a, a temporary babysitter um, to help uh, take care of any children that our guests may have. But uh, occasionally it means a little bit of background noise, but we hope you guys won't mind. Nick, what did you make of all that? I think it's really funny. Um, it 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 takes a lot, I think, for you to to go like, really? Like <laughs> I didn't know about that, you know. And that's uh, it's pretty typical of any conversation that I've ever had with John. Uh, we got lunch like a week or two ago, and it like went from like lunch to then we left the restaurant to them. We ended up drinking coffee and it was like a three hour uh, thing. And if, so that's where you were that day. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and if uh, we had had uh, the time, I would have liked to, you know, have as much of a, of a, that long of a conversation today as well. But uh, this episode was filled with, I think probably more like piping hot takes than almost any other episode. So uh, get ready to dig in. It's a lot of fun. Absolutely. So we'll go now to Dr. John Skinnis. John, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. We could talk about 50,000 different things, and we will. But first, we always like to hear about how a guest got where he is today. Uh, how did you end up in the treacherous, dark world of academia? I mean, by uh, by providence and luck is the only uh, real answer. So I was uh, born and raised in a in a uh, you know independent fundamental Baptist family outside of Chicago, uh, which... Uh, was a good and unique upbringing in some ways, but then also kind of set me down a path to uh, thinking deeply about what I believed, thinking deeply about the relationship between communities and economics and politics. Um, the I was always a very curious kid. Uh, you know, I was uh, wanted to know why things were the way they were. So, I, and somehow along the way, I started reading a lot of theology and philosophy and wanted to kind of go deeper in that. So. Uh, when I was uh, looking at colleges, I went to, and I also was interested in politics. I had done like summer programming in D.C., had seen a shining university on a hill, and I asked, well, you know, what university is that in D.C.? And of course, it was uh, Georgetown University. <laughs> um, so, a, uh, and funnily enough, uh, you know, Georgetown's, you know, ostensibly Jesuit and Catholic. Um, my community I grew up in uh, viewed it as basically like a mission field. And so I didn't get any uh, pushback, whereas my friend who wanted to go to Liberty University, that was seen as like a liberal school. <laughs> um, but I went to Georgetown, uh, studied uh, international politics and Russian uh, Russian foreign policy there and was lucky enough to have the opportunity to continue on to graduate school. So where I, did it, I went over to the UK um, and I didn't just go over to the UK because I had the, the scholarships to do so. Um, I had kind of come to the conclusion that the way we studied international relations, at least in D.C., was very warped by uh, the American perspective. And I was looking for not not that I would get the truth in the U.K., but I would get a different perspective. And that certainly was the case. So I did a master's and Ph.D. in uh, in Oxford uh, and then came back to do a fellowship actually at UT Austin. So hook em horns uh, at the Clement Center for National Security. And while I was there, uh, I was lucky enough to hear about an interesting opportunity at Catholic University of America. They were starting a program that wanted to kind of bridge between uh, the traditions of American political thinking and current day foreign policy. And in the American Academy for International Relations, there's you're really encouraged to be very disciplinary, very focused. Um, and so someone like me who had kind of more eclectic interest between political theory and international relations was sort of, you know, not not the norm. But here's it came along this perfect job of looking for just that. So 
uh, that was uh, in 2018, and I've been at Catholic University ever since. So uh, studying Russian foreign policy, uh, one could have gone through the 2010s thinking, oh, that's kind of a, a thankless major, like studying Sovietology right on the eve of the, the, the wall falling. But uh, suddenly it's very interesting and relevant again. Uh, what's your, your kind of macro take on, on the war so far in Ukraine? And then we'll dive into a couple interesting threads that I think uh, you have a particularly interesting take on. Thanks. Yeah, it was, you know, I won't claim great insight in my life, but one thing I had, you know, somehow I had a bit of insight on was when I was at Georgetown, um, every, in the School of Foreign Service, everyone had to take a language and I was always kind of up for a challenge. And most people when I was uh, at school were taking Arabic or uh, Chinese or Farsi and there's very little interest in Russian. But I looked at the kind of field and the, the kind of the belief is that Russia is a normal country. It's going to be on a normal development pathway. It's going to become more Western, liberal, European. You know, nothing to see here, folks. And I thought, just from basic knowledge of history, there's no way it's possibly <laughs> true. Uh, and also, you know, Russia has never been, at least for the last 400 years, kind of down for the count. It's gone through these cycles. And oh, by the way, no one can get a job doing this stuff right now because we have a glut of Soviet experts, Russia experts who studied Russian back during the late Cold War and are still in their careers. But when I'm kind of entering the workforce, they're going to all be retiring. And so I decided to study Russian. And uh, that was basically true. I didn't expect it to be as true as it's become <laughs> over the last couple of years. But here we are. Um, I mean, what's going on in Ukraine is uh, kind of the end of the end of the Cold War. Uh, you might say the end of the end of history, although I think that's a complicated claim. Um, the... After Insert meme of Fukuyama pointing a gun at yes. you, I demand <laughs> history end <Yes>. right now. <laughs> it's funny every every yeah. I, I'm a, I'm a bit of a Fuku, uh, you know uh, Fukuyama stan back like five years Double ago. Double reverse irony pilled. Well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm like anti anti Fukuyama, and now I'm coming on to anti 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 Fukuyama because you know the go through these ways where actually the the book the end of history and the last man people forget that second title um, is actually way more like interesting and nuanced and complex than people give it credit for and then sometimes fukuyama says that and then other times fukuyama says like no i was just right liberalism's here it's gonna yeah. it's here to stay so he himself goes through these weird waves yeah. of like a every few weeks like some major publication like the atlantic or the new yorker commissions him to write a piece riffing on the title about whatever geopolitical event is going on right now and he yeah. the theme is he's always right um and yeah. so <laughs> sometimes he's he's right and sometimes he's wrong and usually when he's wrong is when he's most sophistic um yes he, he becomes yeah. the caricature exactly that people who haven't actually read the book think exactly yeah, yeah so there's this weird mimetic thing about him where like i like the you know it's like will, will the real fukuyama please stand up like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i like the good fukuyama i don't like the like caricature fukuyama even when he's himself doing that anyways that that was a tangent um and so in some ways obviously if, if russia had just invaded ukraine and taken kiev in a couple of days like like they thought oh, they would i thought it was kiev kiev sorry kiev <laughs> uh uh, my Russian lang language is coming through. Um, uh, if they just done that, then it still would have been a significant event. It still would have sanctions. It still would have rewritten kind of the landscape of Europe. But it would actually be way less significant than what we have. By failing, Russia has, like, there will be regime change in Russia. It doesn't mean Putin is going to fall. It doesn't mean that, uh, it certainly doesn't mean there's going to be a liberal democratic regime in Russia. But the, like, Putinist system cannot survive this war in its current state and it's already changing how it works 
the global system is already changing how it works based on the sanctions or sanctions regime based on moves and counter moves that the West and Russia are making. So in a weird way, kind of like the first world, I mean, in some ways, I think it's very much like the first world war What started off as a kind of very minor regional war is already having kind of global implications. So why did Russia overestimate its ability or did they not? Did they just assume that the Ukrainians would surrender? They, I mean, they certainly, they underestimated the Ukrainians and they overestimated themselves. Um, why did they underestimate the Ukrainians? Partially, they were afflicted by being kind of too close to the situation. Mm -hmm. They had, you know, they, they, the Russian, the Russians, there's a huge amount of cross ties between Russia and Ukraine, Russian families and Ukrainian families. Many people in Russia, including the Russian government security services, have spent a great deal of time in Ukraine. And in some ways, and certainly a great deal of time before 2014, when Russia invaded Crimea and the kind of slow war, like a low-grade war between Russia and Ukraine began. And so what that meant was that they actually, they under-observed real changes happening in Ukrainian society since 2014. So for instance, in 2014, if you looked at like voting patterns for the Party of Regions, which was the pro-Russia party and the various opposition parties, the, there was a huge base of support for Russia, especially amongst Russian speaker speaking Ukrainians in broadly like Eastern Ukraine. Mm -hmm. There is still some of that, but it, the numbers have changed dramatically as a result of this, like, you know, by now eight year war. The Russians didn't necessarily update their beliefs about that. Mm -hmm. There's also some more interesting things like the Russian, as far as we can tell, the Russian security services didn't actually have any real Ukraine experts because it was so close. They didn't actually develop expertise on Ukraine as a separate country with its own language, culture, political norms, mm -hmm. et cetera, right? The same way that our government doesn't have a huge, like, can they, you know, can Canada analyst desk. <laughs> yeah. There isn't a big Canada, Canada studies. Desk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I think that was part or of the problem. Or even Mexico. I mean, more, or even Mexico. More, yeah, I mean, Mexico is a maybe even better example. Like, huge challenges, like, right to our south. Um, and yet we probably underinvest in thinking about them. Mm -hmm. um, so that's they're kind both of... cultural colonies yeah. of the United States, <laughs> yeah. especially I, Canada. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, especially Canada. I I want to dig more into like some of the American uh, foreign policy failures on this, like mm -hmm. our, our kind of lack of understanding. To what extent do you think of our failures on this is due to basically the the average age of the American bureaucrat, um, <laughs> like overestimating, especially you know within the conservative movement in Congress. Um, you know, you have a lot of Republicans that are like very wanting America to be very involved yeah. because they still view Russia as this huge threat. Yeah. Well, and, and there's funny incentive system that may have emerged over the last 15 years where the two sets of people most incentivized to overestimate Russia's abilities were American neocons and Russia itself. Yep. <laughs> and there's this like weird recursive. Yeah, there's this weird mirror imaging thing, which also happened, by the way, during the Cold War. We forget, like almost from start to finish in the Cold War, there was this cycle of like anti-communists vastly overestimating Russia, uh, Russians both like overestimating themselves and also bluffing. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge feeder for the military industrial complex mm -hmm. during the Cold War. I mean, I think average age probably has something to do with it. Amongst mm -hmm. people making Russia policy, a lot of them, I mean, it's sort of, uh, um, you know, if you if you do Russia stuff long enough, the the it inevitably happens on some, more than one occasion that some like boomer who's talking about Russian foreign policy will say like Soviets, like the Soviets, <laughs> yeah. you know, the Soviets invaded Ukraine or yeah. whatever. It just happens. It's so deeply like buried in their neurons. Which I mean, look, there is something to be said for that. There is continuity in governance 
from the Soviet regime to now. Yes. Like Vladimir Putin was a low level KGB agent in the Soviet Union. Like mm-hmm. so 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 it's I mean, this is all so recent in the grand scheme of things. Yes, so there that's is true. some value there, right? That is true. Um, but your point about overestimating Russia, I do think a lot of it, some of it was that some of it was that the, you know, the Russians overestimated themselves. And we have this problem where this is a problem during the Cold War, too, when if, the, you know, one of the problems that we had during the Cold War was estimating, properly estimating uh, Soviet economic growth, which, by the way, now is also a problem with China. The Chinese are, turns out, are vastly inflating their econ- real economic growth. One of the problems we had was we had like intercepts and documents of like the most secret, you know, Central Committee um, meetings of their secret economic reports. So we had like their like their official economic reports. But we also had their secret economic reports, mm-hmm. which were smaller, of course. But the secret economic reports were also vastly wrong. <laughs> and so, you know, similarly here, like we have. Can, can you describe like just like basic contours of what that would have looked like? Like what, what yeah. were they overinflating concretely? So I mean, just production, okay. generally production, quality. So there was actually like a bureau of the KGB that was tasked with collecting like the as close as it could to the real numbers mm-hmm. from within the Soviet system because it was essentially planned. People had incentives to lie. So you have a similar thing here, right? Mm-hmm. Like everyone is lying at every step of from like the lowliest captain all the way up to Putin in terms of the uh, what's being done, the quality of what's being done. Um, and so, you know, we now know that they vastly overestimated their own, the success of military modernization, for example. They've poured tens or hundreds of billions of dollars into military modernization, mm-hmm. and they have very little to show for it. But they also made a, they also, things like, so, so when we do things like military exercises, we're actually trying to assess how would we do in this scenario. You know, what was clear ahead of time and is now extremely clear is that when they do military exercises, it's more about like putting on a show. They're not actually trying to like work out the kinks of their operational Mm -hmm. system. But it means it was very hard to actually assess like what is this going to look like at scale. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So this war actually kicks off. How quickly was it evident that the the Russian military was not where it thought it would be in terms of its capacity vis-a-vis Ukraine? So there were some... Well, so, you know, credit where credit is due, there were some hints even before the war that there were serious problems. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the Russian Air Force has been almost completely absent in this war, mm-hmm. right? Especially after the first couple of weeks, like very, very low sorties. Like the vast majority of attacks that you see reported in the news are like missile attacks. They're mm-hmm. not they're not like bombs being dropped from aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, people who paid attention to this noticed even in Syria that um, compared to like officially produced propaganda and, you know, media efforts, the Russian Air Force were kind of absent and seemed mm-hmm. to have trouble maintaining a very high like operational tempo mm-hmm. uh, because of most problems of maintenance. It's really hard to keep airplanes in the air when you, you don't have the personnel to do proper maintenance on them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were things like that. There was this guy, um, an army captain, random army captain who wrote this paper like three years ago based on uh, observations the Ukrainians were having in Donbass actually maybe there were more serious problems with the BTG, the kind of uh, Russian battle group design than had previously reported. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, speaking from my own experience, kind of, you know, I, I expected the Russia to invade from like late December, January on. I expected it to be a real invasion, not like a little feint into Donbass, just based on the forces they were putting into place and what they were doing. Um, but I, I expected them to be more successful than they were. I think that for me, the, the first like real shock was... On the very first day of the invasion, there was this air assault on Hostumel Airport outside of Kiev. 
And on one stance, it's like a very daring, you know, the goal is like send in the best paratroopers. Uh, they're, you know, they're going to come in a helicopter, secure the airfield, fly in, you know, a battalion of more paratroopers. And then you have this, you know, beachhead right on the doorstep of Kiev. But they did it in the middle of the day. And that's insane. Like you don't do an air assault with helicopters is insanely risky. And to me, that said they don't have night vision goggles, even for their Interesting. even for their pilots, like much less like their infantry personnel, like they're even their pilots, their best pilots don't have night vision goggles or they would never do this operation this way. And that was the first hint for me that like something has gone very wrong with Russian military modernization. So a couple different threads on on this. Um, one is just technological development to their military Two, um, the quality of their tactics. And then three, just like raw resources available to it. Te- tease out each of those threads. How uh, what was the discrepancy in, in each of the elements? Yeah. So and the, the problem and I'm someone who studied Russian military technology specifically, um, you know, the Russians, they, they do very clever engineering and R&D. They put a lot into kind of these public displays of their weapons outside of a few weapon systems like their anti their defense systems. I've the consensus was that this was a very thin modernization. I was they could, they could design and build some interesting weapons. They couldn't produce them at scale. Interesting. Uh, the Russian armament complex never really recovered from uh, the end of the Cold War. And one of the reasons why Russia was so um, intent on keeping eastern Ukraine in the fold, so to speak, was that a lot of the actual like industrial plant for yeah. the Russian defense sector is actually in Ukraine mm-hmm. in eastern Ukraine. Um, so that was kind of clear from the beginning. It wasn't clear how bad and how deep it was. So, for example, a few years ago, the Russians um, demoed this like full body armor exosuit suit type thing at one of their their armor show, their, one of their like military shows. And some friends sent this to me. It's like, oh, we don't have anything like this. You know, U.S. procurement is broken. And I'm like, guys, they have one of these. Like, <laughs> that's it. They yeah. made one so, of them. Yeah. You know, you I expected like the you know the full body armor exosuit was not going to show up on the battlefield. What I didn't expect was that, like, basic body armor with plates wasn't going to show up on the battlefield. Hmm. I mean, there are, I don't know if this is true, but there are social media videos of, like, mobilized forces being given, like, airsoft, like, looking, like, plate carriers. <laughs> like, like, actual, like, air, an airsoft plate carrier. You can maybe put some, like, stuff on the front, but this is not in no way, shape, or form going to stop a bullet. This may stop um, you from dying from, like... A twenty-two, yeah, but like yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah, basically yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. So I, that's like the technology angle. Yeah. So, what I'm most curious about is it. It it seems like this is kind of a recurring theme that you know they want to do these big things for show, but there's never actually like follow through on the the proper kind of procurement. Why are they not trying to uh, you know get a lot of these materials uh, from China? Yeah, well, now I mean now they are, right? Now they're going to they're buying anything from everybody buying everything from everybody. I mean, there's a couple things here. One, Russia Russia is very wary of China. I mean, it's more wary of the West than it is of China. There's a reason why mm-hmm. um, you know, Putin and Xi have been kind of drawing closer together, but they are still wary of China. Yeah. They're still wary of um and they're still wary of losing their own sovereignty. The Russians have a very um, like functional definition of sovereignty. Like you're sovereign if you can be sovereign. You're sovereign if you can do yeah. things for yourself by yourself. Well, and this mistrust, I mean, goes all the way back to like World War II. Like this is oh, yeah. a long time, yes. Yes. long time coming. So there's, there's a level of mistrust, the desire to preserve the kind of Russian like industrial base, um, certain sense of national pride. And also like, I don't think they knew how bad the problem was. It was mm-hmm. easy to 
it was easy to conceal about the problem was it was easy for you know for corruption you know for corrupt people to you know sign a contract for one thing deliver another thing is hard to get caught mm -hmm. but w w were there no opportunities like either georgia or mm -hmm. crimea where some of the weaknesses in their military capability would have shown yeah. signs of existing a very good question so the consensus in georgia because it's in russia was they were not happy with their performance in georgia that you know georgia's a really tiny country they were you know they were extremely unprepared for war you know, uh, Mikhail Saakashvili was sort of talking a big game, but they weren't actually ready. Um, and so the Russians obviously kind of carried the day there. Mm -hmm. But the sense was that when they kind of did the lessons learned at their performance, they were not happy, especially with the performance of their armor units. Um, that was in some ways the catalyst for this major military modernization effort. Um, the feeling was that in Crimea, the sort of fruits of this modernization were shown. There were these, uh, they, you know, called them the flight men or the little green men, you know, Russian soldiers not wearing any um, identifiers who just showed up to kind of take things over when the order was given, who were professional, plight. They looked like they were very well equipped. Um, you know, I think in retrospect, people forget. I think you know, when people talk, when, when we think about the invasion of Crimea, I think we sometimes have in mind almost like a special operations style, like people parachuting in the middle of the night and kind of showing up. Mm -hmm. In reality, the Russians had like 50,000 soldiers and sailors on their base in Sevastopol. The Russian, the invasion of Crimea was literally them driving off of their base <laughs> um, into what was essentially friendly territory. Yeah. So in retrospect, it seems like maybe we should, maybe we like over, over sampled on that very kind of specific case yeah. because immediately, immediately following that, a few months later, Russia began this kind of insurgency effort in Eastern Ukraine in mm -hmm. Donbass and Luhansk. And that was kind of carried out by GRU. It wasn't normal Russian army units, but it, it hit problems from the very start. Mm -hmm. So I think that maybe could have su suggested in retrospect, this is a shallower modernization effort than we thought. Interesting. You said something really provocative earlier, which is that as an empirical matter, there will be regime change in Russia. Yeah. Say what you mean. Obviously, we're not demented neocons here agitating for <laughs> Vladimir Putin to be assassinated. Cough, cough, certain uh, prominent people on television. But lay out your thinking on that. Yeah. And by the way, if as I try to tell anybody, like Vladimir Putin is a, is a center left politician by Russian standards, right? Really? He's, oh, yeah, absolutely. He's he's a he's an anti-nationalist, right? He's so in Russia, you can distinguish between um, uh Ruskia and Rusiskia, like Russian is in like ethnicity versus Russian is in Russian Federation. Mm -hmm. He's been a big advocate always for the more like federative civil nationalism. Mm -hmm. He's maintained the kind of Soviet, uh, they call it like affirmative action policy, but like he's maintained a lot of non-ethnic Russian people in his government. Mm. You know, Dmitry uh, Shoigu, the defense minister, is not ethnic Russian. Um, he's probably by far... I mean, I think he's he's up there, if not by far the most like like not anti-Semitic or like philo-Semitic leader in Russia's history. Really? Like very. Yeah. Very, um, very overtly uh, welcoming and building ties with Jews in Russia and in Israel with Muslims. Um, so he's like a center left figure, like any of the candidates to replace Putin, any of the real candidates is more reactionary and right wing mm -hmm. than he is. MSNBC um, hardest hit. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this notion that like there's going to be a liberal democratic revolution in Russia just is completely a fantasy. Yeah. Um, Even Navalny was like more right wing than him. You know, right? he, I mean, I don't know more right wing, but and Navalny definitely kind of plays to the crowd a little bit. But yeah. historically, Navalny's you know 
uh, engaged in like nationalist rhetoric. He's not he's not like a he didn't used to be a kind of like like, you know, Gary Kasparov is not going to be the. You know, yeah, 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 exactly. I, I remember he did. Navalny did this interview, uh, like right at the start of the invasion, like basically in support of it, right off the bat. Like he was like, "Yeah, we're we're never gonna give these territories back." Like, what do you, what do you mean? Why would we do that? Yeah, yeah. And then and then you know he noticed he stopped getting invited to go on these international television shows, and so he changed his tune pretty quickly. But that was at least right off the bat what he was saying. Yeah. So, but what I mean by regime change is the the, the Russian regime from you can date it back to Yeltsin 1993 when, he, like, with Clinton's encouragement, they like, shelled the parliament. Um, or maybe when Putin takes over in 2000 or more recent, I think maybe more recently. But the system that's developed is one basically where the bargain is you let you let the security elites control the country uh, and they're going to keep out what they see as like noxious foreign influences and they'll take their primo cut, you know, to compensate themselves. And in exchange, you get a you get a pretty nice life and a better life than anyone in Russia has ever lived. Mm-hmm. Right. You get oil revenues trickling down uh, to, uh, to this, through the state to different sectors. You get a reasonably open economy. You can travel. If you have money, you can travel to Europe. You can travel other places in Russia or the former Soviet Union. You have the Internet. Um, you can you can pirate whatever you want from the West, by the way. Um, that's kind of the deal. Right. So it's sort of it's a, a demobilized and controlled civil society uh, in exchange for a pretty OK quality of life. Mm-hmm. Right. But the kind of extraordinary sanctions regime we've built around Russia since the invasion basically makes that bargain impossible. In addition to the fact that Russia is like massively operationally losing this war or not mm-hmm. achieving their their objectives. So on the one hand, they need to mobilize to have the resources to even to vo- avoid ignominious defeat. Mm. On the other hand, they can't provide the same kind of quality of life that they have kind of implicitly promised in the social contract. How much so, of this was at the elite level, like specifically the wealthiest Russians having this ability to basically part of kind of the, the transnational elite world, you know, have apartments in Manhattan and London and um, and and in Berlin and kind of have your yachts and be able to basically mm-hmm. go around the world unmolested. How, how much of the newly discovered weakness uh, in that system is going to be because they can't do that anymore? That's an interesting question. Part of the kind of Part of the, uh, you know, uh, uh, neocon Davos theory of change here seems to be that, like, oh, if we just squeeze these oligarchs, if they can't have their mistresses in Manhattan, then they'll cry uncle and they'll depose Putin and it'll be great. Mm-hmm. And I'm very skeptical of this. Like, we forget that there are other motivations people ha- can have. And I think by and large, the people at the very top of the Russian system are actually quite nationalist. Mm-hmm. I mean, like... It's funny. There's this there's this line of criticism of Putin that he's like the world's wealthiest man. He's like insanely corrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, and there isn't obviously this almost truth to that. Um, but it doesn't have the the it doesn't land the way people think, because obviously if Putin was just he's not just a kleptocrat. Right. He's not just someone who's looting the state so he can live a nice life. He actually could have done lots of different things to endear himself to the West, to global elites, had a you know it, to have even more. But when you have everything materially, that's that's not what you're about, right? Mm-hmm. Putin is in it for his legacy. Yeah, he's um, he has romantic you know desires. Yeah, just he has like an aspiration any. to be you know a figure up there with Peter the Great. That's mm-hmm. kind of what got him into trouble in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think at the very highest levels of the Russian state, there's also a, quite a strong sense of nationalism, mm-hmm. right? And also, let's be real, you know, 
ever since 2014, the implicit bargain Putin has made with his elites is you will be compensated. If the if the West takes your assets, you will be compensated. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, you know, uh, uh, like um, Khan is like nicer than the Black Sea coast. Mm -hmm. But if you have a mega yacht, on, you can have a mega yacht in the Black Sea coast, right? You can have your nice apartment in Moscow or, um, you know, St. Petersburg. Mm -hmm. It's not quite the same, but it's not... It's not like clubs a bad in Shanghai life. aren't as good as the clubs in Berlin. Yeah, exactly. So, so the ability so to actually meaningfully address like the, these people materially is, I also think, I'm skeptical of that proposition. Yeah, this was really interesting too. You saw this with the um, with the planes situation, right? Mm -hmm. You had all these Russian airlines that were leasing planes from American companies, and when because of the sanctions, they demanded those planes back. Putin was like, "Yeah, I'll just." I'll issue you guys certificates of airworthiness from the Russian government and you can just flip the bird to those American. And that's exactly what they did. I mean, mm -hmm. almost all of those pl planes are still are still flying now. Um, I think one of the one of the other like really terrible comparisons, it's especially beyond the pale, um, you know, within the conservative movement is that is that Putin is uh, working on creating a new Soviet Union. Right. Like mm -hmm. he's, he's trying to he's trying to bring it back. Mm -hmm. What's wrong with that sort of prediction? I mean, I think it's a it's a one, one thing briefly before I turn to that question. Um, you know, very social scientists conduct these gl global surveys of popular opinion and values or whatever. And one thing that's been true for over 20 years is that Russia is one of the highest in the world, maybe the highest where everyday people say it is important for me that I live in a great country. Like, it's important for me personally that I live in a country that's, like, respected and abroad, right? Mm -hmm. So when something like this happens, like with the planes, you know, the average, everyday Russian response is, for lack of a better word, like, solidarity with, like, Russian, the Russian government. There's yeah. a weird way in which, you know, I don't think this crackdown, this crack, the crackdown, even though it's worse than quality of life across Russia, even though they're in different places, there's a certain amount of resentment or fear about the way the war is going, mobilization, in principle, the idea that like we are under attack, we need to band together. It's like a very deeply rooted Russian idea. It's not going anywhere. Well, and I think we would do the same thing too, right? Like if if you know China tried to take all the planes that you know American Airlines yeah. United had, we'd say f you, dude. <laughs> yes. Like you suck. Yes, absolutely. We hate you. <laughs> yeah, and the, the lack of like mere imaging and empathy in Amer American foreign policy really is astounding. I mean, um, who was it? H.R. Um, McMaster wrote this book on strategic empathy. Uh, a couple of years ago, and it's just completely Dang. laughable. Um, I wrote a review for it for Responsible Statecraft because it's like we don't we don't know we don't know how to do empathy. We don't have you know you know right to our master his idea of strategic empathy with the Chinese is literally writing about like a museum exhibit he went to and he's been to China like two times maybe. Yeah. I never want to hear um, those two words together again. <laughs> yeah, but you but uh, you were talking about the 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 Soviet Union. Yeah. you know, okay. making. Yeah. So why why is it why is it a bad idea? So it's based on the mis this mistranslation uh, mistranslation misunderstanding. There's this famous uh, speech where Putin uh, laments that. But he says he says that the fall of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. And people have taken this to mean, oh, he wants to put put it back together. And that's not at all what he meant. What he meant was something more straightforward, which was like this would cause an incredible amount of chaos for a huge region of which Russia is sort of the center. Right. Um, the Soviet system was never going to be rebuildable, but there's also never been a power vacuum like nature and politics abhor a vacuum. Mm -hmm. um, from the Russian perspective, 
you know, the 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 international the Soviet international order, if you want to call it that, when it collapsed, left a vacuum. And if Russia didn't fill it, other people will. Which is, of course, exactly what we've seen, right? Thanks to, you know, the vacuum in Eastern Europe was filled by the EU and the West. For a long time, Russia basically maintained its its kind of relations with Central Asia. And over kind of particularly in the last 20 years, developed this sort of uh, relationship where the Central Asian states liked playing Russia and China off each other. They didn't want to kind of be in the middle. The Chinese have gained increasing economic influence. The Russians maintain their political influence, but that's basically collapsing with the like the, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You're seeing all the Central Asian countries take overt stances against what Russia is doing, implicitly allying more closely with China. Um, so the the Russian attempt to even kind of preserve some semblance of a regional order in which they are at the, in the center, which has sort of been the goal of Russian grand strategy since Ivan the Third, that's like in great peril right now. And that's also why they feel so under threat. Do you want to get more involved with American Moment? Do you want to get off the couch and stop just watching a podcast about the issues you care about? Then you need to go to AmericanMoment.org slash join. If you fill that form out, one of our team members will meet with you and we'll discuss how best to get you involved in politics and public policy here in D.C. Maybe that involves you coming and working at a think tank or a congressional office. Maybe you're in business and it means just holding on for a few years until we get the next presidential administration. Maybe you're a very wealthy person who wants to give us a bunch of money. Either way, go to AmericanMoment.org slash join to meet with a member of our team and get involved more substantively in trying to save this country. It's not enough to listen to podcasts. You actually have to do something. So then what is the, the the path forward for them in your mind? Like what what is Putin trying to do? Yeah. I mean, that's the million dollar question. And that's why people who, you know, there's this increasing right now, the sentiment in D.C. D.C. is very much like the reminds me very much of like 2003 of the Warhawk Party. Like we're just going to roll in and nothing less than unconditional surrender is acceptable. And, you know, Putin's going to be defeated and Navalny is going to throw him in jail and we're going to have democratic elections. It's just a complete and total fantasy. Right. There's a lot of ways. Like if you step back from the assumption that Putin would literally rather end the world than be in that scenario, then we have to take a step back and think like, well, what is he going to do next? Um, I don't think at the same time, I don't think that. For example, just like launching a tactical nuke is his next move because I don't think it gets him what it doesn't. I don't think it gets him what he might hope, and I think there's people around him who can explain that. Um, I do think we're looking at escalation. For example, um, it hasn't. It's not much, but uh, Russian submarines apparently have started cutting like internet supply uh, fiber cables uh, around the world in Western countries. Um, we already are seeing substantially more cooperation with Iran and with China. Um, in a weird way, I mean, one of the reasons I think that the neocons are so boosterish about the war is that it's like creating the fantasy that they've it's always creating had. The acts it's creating the axis of evil. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like yeah. actual cooperation between Iran, Russia, and China was pretty low 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, they all have their own very different interests. They yeah. easily could have been played off of each other. Well, but instead, we're actually like trying to create tax. And it makes, evil. it makes all the sense in the world why this would be the case is because um, sanctions regimes have been the first tool at hand by Western elites. And 
if you keep on forcing these like handful of countries to be more and more autarkic, then they're going to be more and more autarkic together, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and just form an economic compact amongst themselves. Like this is, I mean, a parallel financial system headquartered in Beijing is probably where things are headed, all things considered. Anyway, it, certainly it's in the Russian interest. Yeah. And it has been for a while. There's a really interesting um, story. I think it's in Adam Tooze's book, Crashed, which is about the financial crisis. And the story basically is that in 2008, uh, in the kind of depths of the financial crisis, the Russian government like quietly approached the Chinese about saying like this is the time to like kick off the dollar as a reserve currency and build like an international reserve currency. <laughs> and basically, the Chinese told them to pound sand because the Chinese financial system was too intertwined with the American mm-hmm. that if they did this, it would it would it could really damage. It could have led to been politically damaging and economically damaging in China. Mm. But the Russians have been interested in that for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they haven't had is another interested party. Mm-hmm. And now you have the combination of, you know, Russia is a really big economy. It's one of the largest exporters of commodities, of all kinds of commodities in the world. A lot of countries want to transact with it. And they especially want to no, transact bro, with it. No, bro, it's a it. gas station with nukes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Bill Crystal likes Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and then, basically, you know, one way of viewing the sanctions regime is we're creating an incentive st- structure for for like for uh, what used to be called non-aligned countries to cooperate with Russia. Because mm-hmm. if India, for example, to take a random example, can buy Russian oil and remix it in its refineries and then sell it to Europe, it can do so at a premium. Yeah. So we're actually creating. This is this is what I mean by like thinking through the second, third order effects. The sanctions regime damages Russia today, but it also creates incentives. That undermine the whole thing, that undermine America's sort of financial centrality. Yeah. So there's a real double-edged sword here. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, like sanctions, the way we've historically thought about them are premised on the idea that they can actually, like, that that, that the consequences of the sanctions are worse than the, uh, you know, the the other activity another regime would have to take in order to mm-hmm. make them not a problem anymore. And that just doesn't seem to be the case. One, because um, American foreign policy elites seem to be allergic to exit ramps off of sanction mm-hmm. regimes. They only want to keep rationing them up. And two, uh, there is more and more industrial alternatives, um, whether it's China or, or elsewhere. Um, one of the threads in um, this war that's been particularly interesting, you know, uh, we've we've lived in the shadow in the last six years in the United States of, uh, you know, a bunch of Russian teenagers apparently flipping an entire presidential election. That's that's that's, <laughs> that's what our ruling class say. Um, but in terms of the foreign propaganda effort, Ukraine seems to have pulled off a masterclass. I mean, just absolutely flawless in terms of getting um, the kind of media coverage and internet virality that they want. Every week there's a new hoax, you know, the ghost of Kiev or whatever. Um, What was it? The Lizard Island? What something? Snake Island. Snake Island. Yeah. Um, Why do you think the Russians have been so bad at the at the propaganda stuff? They're supposed to be the masters at this. And, you know, why is Adam Kinzinger have a doge picture as his profile (laughs) picture? And, you know, fellas, hashtag fellas in his uh, his bio. And and also, why are you going as the ghost of Kiev for Halloween? (laughs) (laughs) It's very spooky. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, there was this meme after 2016 that the Russians had this sort of fearsome global you know, disinformatia uh, <laughs> apparatus that the America was uniquely susceptible to. And even at the time, those of us who were paying attention said this is this is basically a way for the DNC to avoid any serious thinking about like why, you know, why Hillary Clinton could lose to Donald Trump. Um, it's just literally like the Russian, like literally the day after the election, Hillary Clinton rolls out for the first time, the, like the Russians hashtag the election. 
meme, right? And we then this also leads to Russiagate and all kinds of things. Um, and it is true that the going back to the Cold War, actually going back to uh, the like after the Napoleonic Wars and like the revolutionary Europe in the mid 19th century, the Russian state has maintained this um, propaganda apparatus, if you want to use the word, on the theory that basically the dividing line between the called the information spheres between the Russia and the rest of the world is like very thin, especially in Eastern Europe. And so revolutionary ideals in other places can actually threaten the regime. And of course, this is like proven exactly correct in the October Revolution when, uh, you know, German sponsored like Marxist revolutionary takes over the, the, the Soviet state. So or the Russian state. So the Soviets, you know, kind of based on that experience, did very much believe that there was this like global information war. Um, and they were very serious theorists of global information war. But the, the model that they used throughout was what you could call the sort of print age model of like one to many communications. And one factor of that is that anyone can broadcast anything, right? The Soviet Union can, in principle, it can, it can print stuff. It can broadcast out radio and television. Uh, it can, uh, in, including in, in the West, right? Through various Western channels. I mean, Russia today is a contemporary example, right? And so you have this Met, you have this like analogy or metaphor foundational to this theory of information warfare of of broadcast. We're putting out signals. Our signals are being jammed. Is our message getting through? That kind of thing. And what I think they missed, and they certainly understand now, is that um, this all changes when this discourse space gets uploaded to the internet. The internet, because the internet is not an, actually a one-to-many system that you control localized production. It's actually a single cohesive network. And it's a network broadly owned and operated by the United States. And so what that meant was that, you know, if the global information space occurs on Twitter, on Facebook and other sort of social media, on media platforms that are reaching people through the internet, and those companies are all controlled by the United States. If and when the US government and its Western allies decides to turn off the spigot, they can in a way that you like, you know, the United States can't turn off Russian radio broadcasts, but it can just turn off Russian state agents on Twitter, on YouTube, mm. whatever, or people that are sort of suspected of being Russian state agents or whatever. So I think that even though they they did build they did build out some kind of apparatus, it was it had a kind of single point of failure, which mm. is it's all running on, you know, it's just Russian software running on American hardware. Right. Interesting. And so what has been novel about the way that the Ukrainians have uh, waged the propaganda war on the other side of the ledger this time around? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that you have to give to the Ukrainians. They've done a, they've done a bang up job. Um, you know, U Ukraine is a very digitally native society. A lot of the best, um, even before the uh, invasion, there have been a substantial amount of um, software development in Kiev, a lot of Western uh, tech companies had outposts in Kiev. You get really good programmers very cheaply. Almost all the web development companies that I know like hire. Yeah, they outsource for like twenty dollars an hour. Yeah, yeah. So they already had Ukraine. this really strong technical competence in Ukraine, and then you, I think, you marry it with like the same way that the the like that YouTube or Twitter can just turn off the dot, you know, turn the dial down to zero on Russian state actors. They can turn off the dial on Ukrainian actors. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean literally like at the algorithmic level, there may be some of that. Also, just in terms of being boosted by 
uh, the, the broader Western media apparatus. Well, I mean, or, or even by by a failure to omit. I mean, the, the mm. Azov Battalion was allowed back on Facebook <laughs> early on in the yeah. yeah in there's the some war. Really interesting cases and stuff like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah, interesting. Um, what do you think it says for what wars will look like in the 21st century? Now, going to kind of like a media theory angle to it. I mean, my friend uh, Kurt Mills. I think he mentioned it on on this podcast long ago. Uh, why a war for Taiwan would look very differently than some people might think is that it would be the first war um, that would be captured on smartphone. Like everyone would see every part of it mm. and it, it would it would look like a first world society being invaded and the Western psyche isn't quite ready for that. Do you think that the Ukrainian war is a preview for what warfare in the 21st century actually looks like? That is a really interesting question. Um, I mean, I do think we for, it, certainly there's an element of truth about the kind of first world thing. At the same time, we forget that during the 1990s, um, you know, CNN was like broadcasting live from from Bosnia, from Kosovo. You know, images kind of horror right into Americans' living rooms. This had, a, I think, this had a dramatic effect on on um, on support for those wars. So I actually think that that kind of that that there is an additional element of chaos and kind of fragmentation to the social media view. But my friend James Poulos has said, and I think he's right, that, you know, social media is sort of televisual in this DNA. You know, mm -hmm. if it's if it's a show on your TV, it's a TV show, right? It's the mm -hmm. same same kind of idea. So I don't know. I mean, what has been more transformative about this war from a technical standpoint is not its media portrayal. If anyways, it kind of, I think it quite rhymes quite nicely with like 1990s era humanitarian intervention mm -hmm. type stuff is actually what's been going on on the ground. Mm -hmm. The use of like distributed um, distributed tools in the Ukrainians' hands mostly mm -hmm. to um, to target and destroy Russian assets in a very decentralized way. And you have you also have this interesting element of network warfare, right? Where the U.S. controls the ultimate commanding heights, which is space, mm -hmm. right? And so we have presumably I don't about any special knowledge of this. <laughs> you know, we have um, military satellites looking at the battlefield. We probably have electronic uh, warfare, signal intelligence assets looking at the battlefield, passing on highly detailed targeting information to the Ukrainians, which then they can kind of distribute and use in the battlefield. Mm -hmm. So even, you know, without, um, without, even without boots on the ground, we're providing a huge battlefield advantage directly to the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. That is a really, that's, that's a new phenomenon of warfare. Do you think that, um, this is going to lead to an interesting reevaluation or resetting of what alliances and being party to a war means. I mean, the 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 mm. the, 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 mm -hmm. the Russia-Ukrainian war has been this, this fascinating experience, and you know, looking from the Russian perspective at this point, like the traditional rules of engagement of what makes you a co-belligerent seem not to apply. I mean, like the, the the United States is the reason Ukraine has been able to survive this long in the war. Yes. Um, do you think that this is the first and last time a country like the United States is going to be able to get away with supplying and, and uh, underwriting um, a war effort to this extent without being more formally a co-belligerent? Well, I mean, part of the problem is like formal co-belligerence is like on the way of the dinosaur mm -hmm. for lots of reasons. Um, I think this is the first, but not the last time this. I mean, I think what we're seeing is the advent of uh, what I think you can call 5G warfare. Yeah. Uh, mm. 5G in the fifth generation is a academic literature on this, but also 5G, like the technology, right? The future, the warfare in the 21st century is going to look a lot different depending on whether you are inside or outside of a 
superpower global network, mm -hmm. right? A, a superpower network, not just built on an alliance system, but built with like a technical layer, mm -hmm. a layer of space communications and intelligence, a layer of financial infrastructure, a layer of high technology infrastructure, right? There's basically only two superpower complexes that can produce like precision weapons now, the Chinese and the United States. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Those are your two options. We don't even really have full evidence that the Chinese can yet. I mean, they haven't had to deploy no, any of it, but right? I mean, you know, they do make millions of like these little DJI drones. Mm -hmm. If they wanted to weaponize them, they could easily do so. I mean, they step down from like what the Chinese could produce to what the Iranians or Russians could produce is like a 50, literally a 50 year. Mm. Like the, the kind of drones that the Iranians are putting out there are, we, you know, we basically could have built those 30 years ago, mm -hmm. I think. It's like a huge step down. Yeah. And so whether you're in or out of this complex is going to be hugely determinative for success or failure. And it also provides a way for the superpowers to provide a huge advantage to their allies without, as you said, being kind of formal co-belligerence. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a new phenomenon in warfare. So would you say that it's accurate to make the the primary hinge of why the Russian-Ukrainian war has gone the way it has technology? That's, um, I mean, it might be controversial to say, but I think the answer is, is yes, mm -hmm. right? I think without uh, American intelligence capabilities, I think the Ukrainians would have been even more worse prepared. They would have had an even harder time responding originally. Um, we forget that, you know, the Ukrainian military was basically overhauled by the United States not really on a technological basis, but be learning to incorporate some new tools in the kind of 2014 to 2022 uh, period. And, you know, I think you, you, the Ukrainians lasted as long as they did early on, in large part due to their own kind of the Russian failures and their own preparation and will to fight. Mm -hmm. But our ability to, when we decided to turn on the spigot, rush technology, weapons, targeting information directly to them, I think has been kind of determinative. Do you think that the technological advantage we've had is uh, actually durable? Um, you know, the, the, the Russians and the Iranians are, are far behind, but does it seem to you that that we're prepared vis-a-vis -vis China to to match that same level of technological escalation? I, as, as an interesting and difficult question. I mean, the, 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 the big constraint here, right, is that the Russians just simply cannot produce high technology armaments in sufficient quantities, right? Mm -hmm. Um it isn't clear things will look differently with china right mm -hmm. they probably can't produce they probably have similar problems producing at the very highest level particularly around like fighter aircraft mm -hmm. um and th we have seen problems like with fighter with their fighter aircraft. we've seen problems with their small arms there was a video going making the rounds of kind of military social media a few months ago of a propaganda video showing off their new rifle mm -hmm. and if you look really carefully you can see that the, the shots were keyholing in the target which is really bad. It means they're like spinning end over end. It's a really yeah. bad sign for like oh my God. production quality. <laughs> yeah, there. I, me and a bunch of buddies have bought uh, before the ban. Yeah. Bought like a ton of Russian ammunition. It's like garbage. Garbage. <laughs> so they so have some terrible. problems there. On the other hand, they you know they simply do produce. The question is how, how quickly could they weaponize the consumer electronics that they produce? We don't have a good answer for that yet. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, does it seem to you that? Um, American elites have uh, fully come to terms with the fact that their technological advantage is their only one. That's an interesting question. I, I'm not sure that I agree. Um, we have, we do have a durable. I mean, our technology advantage is also built on top of our financial network advantage, mm -hmm. our alliance network advantage. Um, it's built on top of a kind of so global soft power mm -hmm. where 
Um, maybe not in country, maybe not in Russia and China. Well, even in those countries, like Xi Jinping's daughter studied at Harvard, I think. Right. Mm. We have this massive like global social status advantage, which it might be eroding, but it's not eroding, not especially quickly, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, there's a there's a there's a kind of meme in certain parts of the right that like the American empire is like is tottering like it's 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 uh, it's past its prime. And I just I'm not sure that that's the case. Mm hmm. Uh, pivoting slightly, you you wrote a piece for uh, Compact Magazine uh, called Why Conservatism Failed that touches on a lot of these themes relating to technology as well. Briefly lay out what your thesis in the piece was. Everyone should read it. We'll link it below uh, because I think it 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 certainly resonated with me a lot on some of the the questions I have on why why the right may not be fully prepared to reckon with the modern problems the world is facing. Yeah, the thesis is very simple. Um, any any so-called conservatism which doesn't reckon with the way that technological and economic change uh, undermines values, virtues, and institutions, and culture, changes society, is completely unserious. Mm-hmm. And since American conservatism doesn't do that, American conservatism is completely unserious. Mm-hmm. And it has conserved basically nothing or mm-hmm. very little. Um, the It's essentially a materialist uh, thesis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the kind of Russell Kirk line was, you know, ideas have consequences. You could say the line of the article is consider that things besides ideas yeah. also have consequences. <laughs> no, I, I, marketplace of ideas is fake. It was invented in the 1960s to sell magazines. This is basically <laughs> my, like, I, 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 th- I think we way over index on ideas yeah. on the right. Um, Absolutely. Because it keeps a lot of people employed. Absolutely. Um, but. Okay, so uh, let's let's talk about brass tacks, some inflection points. Name an inflection point in the 20, 20th century that um, you think is the tail wagging the dog on some societal change that the right tried to oppose through ideas alone. Uh, I mean, the widespread contraception. Okay. Birth, widespread birth control, specifically the pill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what did it do uh, to civilization and, and where, where was the approach of establishment conservatism insufficient in, in I mean it, it. it basically single-handedly rewired uh incentives around like dating like sex dating marriage and childbearing mm-hmm. uh, and we more you can see this borne out by the fact that um in any any society that hits this sort of certain point of modernity uh and especially when contraceptives become easily accessible uh, undergoes huge changes in in the fertility of society, in the kind of age structure of society, in in sexual and gender roles, um, and you know, some of those are good, some of those are bad, but the the changes is almost unprecedented in global in history, mm-hmm. and you know, the approach of conservatives to this was like abstinence programs, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know, like churches talking about like sexual purity or whatever. It was just completely inadequate mm-hmm. because it wasn't an ideational change. It wasn't. You didn't have to change anyone's minds about uh, this. It was just a became a, a it, it was a fact, it was mm-hmm. an economic, social, and technological fact in that society. Well, and the outcome of that too is like we don't we don't really have like a natalist party. Like we have mm-hmm. we have a party that specifically wants to kill babies, and then you have a party that like doesn't really care either way whether you have them or not. And so that's how you end up with a with a society where like most women are on the pill. Um, they're completely unknowledgeable about their own fertility like you have these women that are like 35 saying i'm gonna have 10 kids no you're not like that's like that biologically not possible like but they don't even know these questions um 
because nobody nobody says anything about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but maybe dig into that a little bit, right? Before the pill, you don't need. And so it's funny. Like conservatives will talk about the sexual revolution, but what they usually mean, like that they, they'll acknowledge the pill is part of it, but they also talk about all the ideas that yeah. change around it. Woodstock. Right? Yeah, yeah, but like forget all that. Just look at the technology. Like before the pill, you don't need a natalist party because. You have like it's an default. empirical. You have, yeah, you, have default, you have a natalist natal, country. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have a natalist country, right? Before the pill, you don't need, like, you know, there's varying degrees of like education, including like traditional education, culture around women's fertility. But you don't need it. You don't need. You actually don't need a kind of educational enterprise around it because it's actually what's basically like traditional knowledge passed down mm-hmm. from like mothers to daughters. Yeah. Because otherwise, there are huge social problems, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so these things kind of take care of themselves. You have a culture, you have a literal culture of fertility, by which I don't just mean a culture that prefers children. I mean, you have traditions, practices, roles, institutions that that take care of this, right? Mm-hmm. And then that's all replaced by technology. And then conservatives are just like twiddling their thumbs while this is going on. So so, so paint a rosy picture for me. The pill uh, technologically becomes possible. What would a responsible conservative movement um, and political party championing its values do in that moment now you're trying to get me fired (laughs) (laughs) um well i think it's interesting right like this is the moment where i mean dismantle the factories where the pill is made like (laughs) make it illegal well so i will say this it's interesting like when my essay came out the number one thing that like uh that people like normicons attacking it would raise was like the Dobbs case. Like, how can you believe this? How can we believe that uh, sort of doesn't fail when we have Dobbs, we've overthrown Roe v. Wade? And there's a lot of compl- answers to that. But one, the, the one that kept coming to mind was like, well, two things. One, I don't, the technology is shot through this entire thing, right? Mm-hmm. The whole discourse on privacy and law comes from technological changes like the mm-hmm. automobile and the telephone. That's like literally where the, mm-hmm. The like jurisprudence around privacy comes from, um, you know, the pill and other kinds of contraception start changing norms around sex and they don't always work. And so then you have the question of abortion and then the abortion debate is changed by ultrasound. Right. So so it goes both ways. Sometimes it can help you, but but you're ultimately at its way. The the lesson of the piece is not just like technology bad. Mm -hmm. It's like technology has a big impact. Yeah. and you have to reckon with that. But the second thing I thought of was... It's like, you think this, you're in charge? No, the tech yeah, is in charge. Yeah, technology is in charge. <laughs> yeah. But the second thing is that the abortion issues also stand out to me as an area where the response has not been conservative, right? Like, the if anything, and like people in the life movement are very remiss to acknowledge this, but if anything, like, quote-unquote traditionalist arguments about abortion basically fail because you can always you can like cite Thomas Aquinas on the quickening of babies you know you can cite you can cite all these other instances of exquishiness on on different kinds of norms around this right Mm -hmm. the position of the pro-life movement has been actually this is bad this is bad because of natural law this is bad because of our of uh you know uh, has been making arguments about what is good and what is bad it has not rested at all on this is traditional mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and the are the thrust of the piece is like this is traditional is not a you know it's not a good argument in a technological society we actually mm-hmm. have to have those debates about what's good and what's bad and it's no coincidence that it's in the wake of of the so-called sexual revolution that the church the catholic church produces human vitae and begins like actively wrestling with uh these questions mm-hmm. right because the political liberalism tries to take basically political questions off the table 
technology creates new political questions like makes like so you know natalism and fertility aren't something that have to be a political question until the ability to completely erase it is is put on the table by technology and political liberalism is hoping to make as few things political as humanly possible and so these two forces are on a collision course with each other at all times absolutely and that's why everything is so crazy right now yeah so marshall McLuhan says that the effect of a technology is like is a change in scale pattern or tempo of human life Mm -hmm. and whenever you have a change in scale pattern tempo you also have winners and losers Mm -hmm. and winners and losers are what creates politics Mm -hmm. um so both in terms of of who benefits and who who loses, and then the the coalitions that can be built and the change in those coalitions based on who's winning and who's losing. Mm-hmm. And new technologies are always unleashing these these uh, new this, these you know these political pressures. Mm-hmm. So be- besides the pill, give me two more technological advancements that were the the tail wagging the dog on on why conservatives were losing and they were asleep at the wheel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, gr- great question. Um, the shipping container. I have never heard a single conservative rail against the effects of the shipping container. Interesting. But the shipping container, uh, both in terms of like the actual cost of shipping any particular good, but also the way that allows you to build a much more effective uh, uh, shipping and trade logistic system. So like you can like have a container because you have a container, you can track that container yeah. with a computer yeah. and you can connect that to an automated crane and then you can offload container ships 10 times faster than actually more than 10 times faster than older ships. All of shipping basically became fungible. It's yeah. just it's shipping just becomes fungible and it becomes super cheap. Yeah. And because it's fungible and super cheap, it enables globalization mm-hmm. and it enables you to it makes it more cost effective to make more things abroad. And then this means you are making more yeah. things abroad. You're conducting labor arbitrage, environmental regulatory arbitrage, mm. and you're taking jobs away from American communities, and you're getting, you know, the whole the whole effect. Yeah. The version of trade that, uh, you know, kindergartners and third graders learn about where, you know, you have these these wooden ships with masts and barrels of yeah. spice <laughs> in, 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 the, in the hull. That's yeah. not that's not the thing yeah. anymore. Yeah. Like, and so this is the other thing is like the conservatives have this very like brain dead image of like technologies are good or bad. But either technologies are neutral or they're good and bad. Mm-hmm. And neither of those is the case, right? Mm-hmm. They have an effect. Mm-hmm. The effect can be complex. Sometimes that effect can be, and this is the other thing, is if you believe that ideas of ideas of consequences, mm-hmm. then it's because you have bad ideas, you have bad outcomes. And right. if you have good ideas, you'd have better outcomes. Mm-hmm. And that's like fairy tale thinking. Yeah. In the real world where I live, good ideas or good business practices can have bad outcomes. Mm-hmm. That's just it. Like mm-hmm. I don't think the shipping container is a bad thing, but it had an effect right and a, and a responsible conservatism would have recognized that and tried to deal with the effect mm-hmm. interesting um so that's that's a great second one give me a third okay uh i'm, I'm trying to like think of like that dance monkey dance vastly <laughs> yeah. different sectors Black, um, tell me more <laughs> i mean i think the kind of like a kind of classic example well, here's 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 uh uh here's one like um <laughs> uh, the garage door opener so, oh. no, 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 no. So the garage door opener, not, I'm not thinking so much about, you could probably make a case about like, you know, the way that this like creates these kind of isolated communities where you just like pull into your garage and there's no, but I'm actually thinking about like when we, when we go to war in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the garage door opener is like a technology that enabled people to build IEDs really quickly. It's like My you hit a button God. and you have a server mechanism on the other end. You could build like any idiot with access to some explosives can build an IED 
with a garage door opener. Um, so now we figured this out pretty quickly, and then we started looking for these suspicious shipments of pallets of garage door openers coming over the Syrian border. Um, but and that's infrared that makes garage door openers work. No, or? I think it um, uh, leaves them as a radio. Okay, a little radio radios. wave. But just an, that's just an example. Or you can say the AK forty-seven. Like yeah. the AK forty-seven was designed to make it easy for like a like authoritarian, like centrally controlled, managed uh, army to be able to like kit out its troops, but it ends up being this agent of like highly decentralized, like insurgent anti-globalization, yeah. anti-decolonization activity. Cause it's like super easy to maintain. It's so easy to use that even a child can do it. Um, <laughs> This is a kind of that's almost a kind of a stock example. All right, you, can, you can keep going if you want. I have decided that this episode is going to be seven hours long, and we're just <laughs> going to do this all day. Come up with more things that are bad. Yep. No, I, on a serious note, uh, I'm 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 going to make you prognosticate a little bit. All right, all right. What's the what's kind of like the the bleeding edge? Like what's going to be the next thing that you think conservatives, the next technology that conservatives are going to? What do you have your hair on fire about that yeah. no one else that no attention. one else does? Okay, that's a yeah, really so interesting. Yeah, so you can't do like the anti-humanism yeah. thing. Well, okay, I'll start off with an inverse one, which is like something that I think people have their heads hair way too much on fire about, which is like social media. Like I think social media, at least in the kind of current iteration, is already past its useful lifespan. I think we're already like the fact that like even very normies are hair on fire about it means that it's actually all the cool people I know are basically completely off of social media now. Um, so I think that that's something that's like, I mean, it already has had bad effects. Like you look at the suicide rates and mental health rates for teenage girls and they're terrible. Um, but um, the technology is already kind of moving on. What's something that is going to have really terrible effects? Well, uh, electric cars, let's say. I'm not, I'm not opposed to electric cars in principle. Like I think Teslas are fine. They're cool vehicles. The technology is really interesting. But at the same time, uh, when you move to all electric vehicles, it requires um, two things. One, it requires um, like lithium and rare earth metal production. That's just at another scale from what we're already doing. And there's real questions about the way that's going to drive like security dependencies and scarcity around that also scarcity of actually like producing electricity to yeah. use these cars well and china other... does a lot more of that than we do right like oh yeah they're the, by far the largest yeah. manufacturer right yeah. and as they respond look to respond to our massive new sanctions that nobody's talking about on chips hitting us with rare earth metals is an obvious one and then you have then, then you have people caught between a rock and a hard place right which is um which is the other thing uh you know, you can build an electric, you could, you could build a basically analog electric car. Like, I mean, the, some of the very first automobiles were actually battery powered. People don't, people don't know this. It's like really bad batteries is the reason why the internal combustion system won. But um, it can be done. However, in order to achieve the kind of efficiencies we want, especially in terms of power management, all electric vehicles are basically smart vehicles. Mm. And they're, they're built around... Like the, like the Tesla is like an iPad with wheels, right? It's built around this computing infrastructure, right? That computing infrastructure is basically centrally controlled. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you have an analog automobile, not only does it go further than an electric car, but it's it's not connected to anything, right? You can, you, it gives you a certain sense of freedom, maybe too much freedom, you know, conservatives didn't really deal with that, that one either, but you, you can use it as you please. It's really hard to centrally control or manage the use of internal combustion engines. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when everyone is in fleets of electric vehicles, then the central control of 
transportation becomes possible. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that that's the, the intention or design of people who are building it, but it is a necessary effect of how they are building it, mm-hmm. right? So you can mm-hmm. imagine a future California where rather than the state simply saying, you know, don't drive to work today, they simply shut off, you know, they, they give you a hard cap and say, you know, P, if your last name is A through L on, you know, because of brownouts and electrical mm-hmm. production on, you know, Tuesday, Thursdays and Saturdays, you have 50 miles on your car. And if you try to drive more than 50 miles, your car will shut down. Yeah. Right? Not mean, because you're losing electricity, but because, you know, we can we can actually over the wire, we can actually in, impose that on you. And well, and this has been deployed, like not not again without this central ability to control it. But in India, I mean, just uh, one or two years ago, uh, there were precisely these restrictions, which is, you know, A through J or whatever the middle letter was. Um, you don't get to use your cars on every other day and the other half on every other day. Yeah. Yeah. All the Guptas get to drive this day. Yeah. Um, but it, they actually did a similar. I was going to bring up Honduras as an example, uh, you know, where my where my parents live. Uh, they did uh, based on the uh, last digit of your license plate. Uh, if it was and this was during covid um, and they were also doing crazy stuff like like when my parents drove into their neighborhood, they would like like pressure wash the military would like pressure wash your tires wow it just like makes no sense but <laughs> but um but they but seriously they were very serious about this and there were i mean guys with like m16s yeah, basically yeah, yeah. enforcing no 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 you are an odd vehicle do not pull out of your driveway and i can imagine the effect to which yep. if you had centralized control over a vehicle like yeah that. and again this is, this is the thing about serious technological thinking is I'm not saying that anyone, I'm not saying there's a conspiracy to build, do it this way, but once it becomes possible, sort of like Chekhov's gun, right? Like once it becomes possible, someone will try to do it. Yeah. And so technologies that are in their essence, more or they ha- in their design, more centralized, mm-hmm. more centralizable, more remotely controllable, they pull society in that direction. Yeah, yeah when I saw that story too, I, I didn't see much about it after the fact, but of uh, this guy that had... Uh, the um thermostat like with the, yeah the wi-fi oh, connected yeah. thermostat Absolutely. in colorado it's like oh you're you're at an off-peak time so you can't or you're at a peak time so you can't you know turn your temperature past this i yes. mean like what other technologies do you yeah. see that that danger with? i mean is it ultimately like a an iot issue internet of things like and the centralization onto connected networks of all of these different devices ultimately create single points of failures where authoritarian regimes could could very easily control your life i mean yeah that's that's the internet of things is like whose things is yeah the question <laughs> in play here whose things are they really yeah um yeah no this is a this is it's it both it's baked into the te- technology mm-hmm. but there are other ways of building these technologies um and that's why again a, a serious movement for human flourishing has to think about that and take that into account mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's the cars thing is so interesting, right? Because I think that's another piece of technology like the pill that had more to do with changing the contours of American society than than any idea Absolutely. could have in a German Absolutely. lab. Um, but you know, it's there, there's so many elements of the relationship we have with automobiles that are that are not obvious, and that certainly yes. in this regime uh, would never be set up the same way again. Just, <laughs> just the fact that you can like easily work on your car, yes. you can drive it with like a pretty minimal license, and you know you can go up to whatever speed you want. But there's basically limits you can't do. Like there's all these things. Like if a car was invented today, it would be like a golf cart. 
like it would not you not be allowed to use it like the cars that we have mm-hmm. incumbent relationships with and they'd be completely connected and you know yep. the police would be able to switch it off if so inclined and it seems like we're we're convergently evolving back to that is basically a souped up golf cart is what you get and yeah the teslas are cool but it's gonna be ultimately disaster um does ai bother you uh, n- not in the way it bothers other people, right? I think like I'm. I think the alignment problem is sort of fake. I certainly think that See like a lot of that. what passes. So the idea that like we're on the cusp of this, uh, creating this AI god, god called an uh, you know uh, uh, artificial general intelligence, and if we don't do it just right and give it engineer just the right values into it, that it's gonna turn us all into gray goo or launch a bunch of nukes like war game style. Like it's basically fake. Um, a lot of what passed for AI ethics and AI safety is really about trying to like engineer socially preferred outcomes mm-hmm. into the technology. And oh no, the AI, people, yeah, <laughs> the AI noticed things. Yeah, AI noticed things. And so, and a lot of people who are doing it now basically just actually don't want to improve AI. I think AI is a wonderful tool. Uh, and the other thing is, is more, humans always have a have a inherent tendency to idolatry right to mm. actually make things and then pretend that we didn't make those these things and they're like somehow independent of us and then worship them on that basis we've been doing this for thousands of years ai is the most powerful uh version we, we of this personify yet. everything around us. yeah so we built this system which is basically just like running algebra over a corpus of human text and then it, it like creates this oracle and now we can ask the oracle things and we can like bask in its presence yeah, or whatever. It is, the it magic our, eight ball was the first exactly. AI. <laughs> it is You're our golden calf. It, yeah, it, absolutely. Yeah. So I think if we can avoid that, then it's a great tool. It's very cool for creativity, very cool for automation. It promises to automate, automate a bunch of boring data entry type stuff. I think the main challenge is building culture institutions and virtues around how to use these tools mm-hmm. in a responsible way. So what 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 is the like first principle or like premise based you know variation you have with the rest of people who study technology that Mm. makes it so that you don't worry about ai in the way that they do i mean i have you know just cards on the table i think it's because uh ultimately you need christian ethics to understand issues like ai properly because the way people talk about agi they're talking about insolment that's not a thing yes yeah like you can't do that with a machine (laughs) like um but but what 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 do you think distinguishes the way you look at these issues from the way that your average you know secular stanford scientist would yeah i think i think it's a couple things i think there's a theological dimension of like if you think a human is just a meat computer in a like muscle exoskeleton which is like the Reddit version of human anthropology, yeah. then yeah, you worry about the AI. It's like, oh no, we're gonna build a better computer and then my me computer will be uh, will be obsolete. Yeah. And I just think that's completely wrong yeah. um, for lots of reasons. And also, the, you know, the most serious people who have studied it also basically think that's wrong. Um, the So there's that. There's also the kind of, you know, long durée historical approach. So you look back at most of the technologies that we build and you know the problem inevitably is what we do with them how we react to them the way that we especially when we react to them in ways that are um that are um unreflective about the kind of contingency of human existence the contingency of our social institutions mm-hmm. that and in other cases where because i mean the norm of technology development in a in a non-technological society society which isn't always revolutionizing always changing itself is a new technology or technique comes along and then kind of social cultural norms and institutions kind of 
and frame it and modify it and contain it and then it's fine mm-hmm. and it's just another part of human life um so for me the important thing is that we get to that step that we get to the step of like oh we're going to generate actual human norms culture values mm-hmm. institutions virtues practices around this technology mm-hmm. and so is the problem that we have right now one that half the political spectrum doesn't actually think about these things because it's too busy like writing the conservative case for capital gains tax cuts but <laughs> besides that um that technological development is happening at a pace that is outstripping our ability to govern it yes i mean i think it's been said that like engineers can ship code faster than legislators can regulate mm-hmm. um now some of that might just be specific to like information technologies mm-hmm. but i think that's a real problem and it's an accelerating problem and even if you think that the pace of technological change is slowing slightly relative to the 20th century. A claim, by the way, which I think I'm a bit skeptical of, it still is a huge, like we, we've, we've barely, we have barely adjusted to the technological changes of the 20th century, much less the 21st century. Yeah. Um, part of the reason though, is that we haven't had institutions or ways of thinking about technology. Um, like for example, um, there, there were there there were ideas about, and there was briefly an existence. I'm gonna I'm forgetting the name, but like an office of technology assessment. Actually, that's what it was called, the office of technology assessment in the White House, which job was simply like look at new technologies, figure out what kind of effects they're gonna have, and Newt, Newt Gingrich killed it in the Contra for America as like a waste of taxpayer dollars because mm-hmm. the almighty market would decide what new technologies we had, mm-hmm. and that was the real conservative approach was mm-hmm. just allow the invisible hand to you know, have its way with us. Um, so I do think I'm actually a bit of an optimist about this because I think that there are actually ways of assessing these problems. There are ways of developing institutions to handle them more rapidly than we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, well, frankly, we have to do this or uh, we won't really have a human future. Mm-hmm. What is um, a technological development that if you had to like actually take the completely Luddite approach, you would just eradicate? today hmm what is banned yeah, yeah, yeah. in the Asconis Zardom <laughs> I, well again I, well, the I, let's say this the smartphone specifically the smartphone uh-huh. um, in the specific sense that we wouldn't build it the same way today if we had a choice like you're, you're piling putting together like a bunch of like sensors and uh, also with internet con- connectivity and a little like you know entertainment connection to uh, you know to the full spectrum of human entertainment of all uh, of all uh, levels of uh, class or worthwhileness um, or sinfulness, um, and we're going to just put it in your pocket, right? There's no need to do it that way. Mm-hmm. You could you could achieve the vast majority of the benefit of the smartphone disaggregating it into other devices mm-hmm. that don't come with some of its attendant problems. But wouldn't it convergently evolve into consolidating and and becoming the shiny black piece of glass? Well, you asked me what I could ban it. <laughs> That's what I would be. Yeah. And what's is the, is there something you would say that only five sensors allowed? Yeah, yeah, one yeah. Machine. <laughs> is is there something that you'd say in your in your? I'm making the Luddism personal. Sure, absolutely. That's great. Uh, is, is is there something in your household specifically? Show me on the doll where the smartphone yeah. touched you. <laughs> no, that's that's a great question. Um, I mean, I do think. Like, I do really try to limit my phone usage at home. My wife, she is going to say, not enough. And that's true. And that's true. Um, I think doing more to do things, it sounds like kind of uh, trivial, but things like a digital Sabbath are really mm-hmm. important. And I think the more we can do to create norms around that, the better. I also think that we, people can probably get away with 
more than they realize. Like you, you know, you have you you can set up an email auto response or an email signature that basically says, "I don't you know check my phone at this this time or whatever." A lot of our norms on things like email are completely busted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think begin to push back against that is really helpful. Um, we have another example for you. This wasn't on, on, on purpose, but um, when we lived in my wife and I lived in England for many years, we did not have a microwave. And that was actually awesome. Mm-hmm. It actually forced you to like prepare food differently. Yeah. Prepare this is why you were able to have four kids. Yes, this is why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the vital fluids. Um, yeah, so like not having a microwave is a great way to like force yourself to prepare food differently, prepare different kinds of food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, even like the concept of leftovers, right? Yeah. Like, but you can still have leftovers. You just have yeah. to like warm them a different way and prepare yeah. them a different way. The kind of like, oh, I didn't think about dinner. I'm just going to throw in some chicken nuggets for the kids, like from like, you know, yeah. uh, slushy meat, chicken meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been formed into dino pa- patties. Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't yeah. become as much of an option. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. People think. On the other hand, they're like pro. So like, here's an example. So the microwave is like technology we should avoid its effects. Uh, the chest freezer, the opposite. A chest freezer is like a like pro conservative, like pro big family, pro like buying meat in bulk from a yeah. bunch you actually know. So, so like, the, it's not a bad technology. It's a great technology. So the first big purchase uh, when we when my wife and I bought our house mm-hmm. was I bought a it's like a 1970s 24 cubic foot chest freezer Amazing. from some guy yep. on Craigslist. Yeah. I paid $200 for it. He put it in the back of his pickup and drove it to my house. It's got like a huge dent in the side. He spray painted it. I tell you, it's more like yep. energy efficient, keeps the food more yeah. cold yep. than anything else. And my wife's got like... She's got almost like six months worth of like yep. soup in there for Absolutely. after the baby's This is here. the thing. Yeah. I, I want a conservatism where you can like say like the microwave is a bad technology and the chest freezer is a good technology yeah. and actually like have that discussion. Or yeah. another example is like when Laudato to Sea came out, the Pope Francis's like globalization, the environment thing. There's like a line in there about air conditioning, how it's bad. And a bunch of American like conservative Catholics were attacking this. It's like, no, he's like obviously correct. American <laughs> air conditioning is bad. Yeah. It's bad personally. It's bad for your family. It's bad for the environment. Yeah. It's bad for your community. Um, the, the one the one American conservative who I think actually understands technology. You want to guess who it is? This is a super deep cut. No. Clarence Thomas's grandfather who what? raised him. Absolutely. There's this <laughs> line in Clarence Thomas's memoir where he talks about how his grandfather bought a new. He was like, I think he did like a fuel business or something. It was a very like working collar, blue class, uh, blue collar, working class job. And he bought a new truck. It was like his big purchase for his business. Right. And the first thing he did in this new truck was he ripped out the heating system, like cabin <laughs> heating system of this truck. And his argument was if I have cabin heat, I will be like, I will not want to get out of my cab when it's like negative 10 outside. Yeah. And I need to be delivering fuel. And so I'm going to take it out so that I build, you know, I build the virtue, I build the practice of actually like doing my job well. Yeah. Like that's, that's really a conservative way of thinking about technology. Yeah. I was thinking about this the other day. I just bought uh, from one of my neighbors, I bought a 1990 Volvo. Nice. Uh, and it's like actually like made in Sweden. Uh, we were working. Moose proof. Um, yeah, like work it. So here's the thing. I've got an SUV, right? I got a 2017 Jeep. Uh, and then we have this like little, I mean, it's a Volvo 240. So it's like little sedan. It weighs twice as much as <laughs> like, as it weighs almost 4,000 pounds because yep. it's like just pure metal. But he, but here's the thing. It's like the whole thing was made in Sweden. So we're like working on the engine, right? I'm thinking, I'm like, why is this so easy? Like, why can I reach everything? Mm. Well, I realized because they made it in Sweden, there's no air conditioning. 
Um, mm-hmm. The heat will melt your face off, but there's super just no air conditioning at all. So like taking out the spark plugs, like 30 seconds, you know, no yeah. because you don't have to That's like so reach back around yeah. and under to. Another example. Here's another example. Right, like the the American Association is like, oh, the left. The left likes like small hybrids like a Prius. And so to be a conservative, I'm going to do the. I'm going to be the smart. I'm going to do the I'm gonna opposite. Buy a muscle right? car, Dude, I'm going to buy a F150. Yeah, I'm going to buy like a. a a GM a GMC SUV with like a five foot fender, mm-hmm. whatever, right? And yeah. that's 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 how like how smooth like mimetic brain. smooth <laughs> brain yeah. Yeah. are. It's like no, that is an anti like that. You know, not only does it consume a lot of gas, which is by the way it makes it harder to have a big family if you if you also have this yeah. huge gas bill, right? Also. You know, that's not a vehicle. That's a vehicle meant for like a like the Liberian Civil War. Like, <laughs> yeah. how can you have a pronatalist policy when you literally can't see a toddler in front of your vehicle? Right? <laughs> like, there's like, you know, you don't have to just reject what the left wants for its own reasons and yeah. just do the literal opposite. Yeah, the left spent you know 15 grand on their brand new Prius, and my family is starving because I bought a hundred five thousand dollar GMC Sierra. Yeah. Did you see those those TikToks for like a car dealership talking about how big their like monthly car? Yes, dude. It's like like fifteen hundred a month yeah, or yeah, whatever yeah. for really a owning cat. the libs with your yeah. by paying the Ford my finance company. Please help me with family yeah. dying. No, what I want yeah. is like a Prius, but like I want like like a balloon pump and I want the entire cab to get like bigger so it can fit 17 people. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. it. But like I want that same level of energy efficiency so yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. have to pay for gas. Yeah, whereas like come out to Hyattsville like the real pronatalists are driving like 15 passenger white vans yeah, yeah, yeah. with yeah. their, you know, with their 12 kids. Yeah. Well, and the, the, I got some folks at my church that have families that size and they all drive like 1990s like the big long like ford Mm -hmm. vans or whatever what's really funny is once the the gas prices started going up sarab just hasn't driven in like yeah. Two years. <laughs> His car's just been sitting in the Someone same parking spot. Someone stole my license plates the other day. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I need to get rid of that car. Anyway, uh, John, where can people keep up with everything that you're doing uh, and 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 read and listen to um, all, all of your, your various wonderful um, thoughts? Uh, so I, I don't have a... Uh, I mean, Twitter is probably the best way to kind of see where I'm publishing. I'm publishing at uh, The New Atlantis. I have a series on of why uh, the world of like consensus reality and one mainstream sense of what's true is kind of is uh, obsolete, why we're going to be entering a world of a fragmented sense of reality, uh, the new Atlantis, which is a great magazine people should subscribe to. Uh, and then I publish in various other places like Compact, Return Magazine, um, the National Affairs, uh, and uh, then my academic work you can find on my CUA uh, website. Wonderful. Well, John, thank you for for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure to talk to you on camera and off. And uh, we uh, we we appreciate it, especially because uh, you are a family man. And so you uh, had to account for your baby, who is also here. People hear a little bit of uh, crying in the background. That that was uh, that was. A little Elizabeth. Um, yes. Sounds like our babysitter was torturing her to death. No, no, no I'm sure. I'm sure she was fine. And the nice thing about like the pronatalist side on the right is like, oh, you're a pronatalist. Well, can I bring my baby? Like, Absolutely. how pronatalist are you really? The, the answer so it's, is uh, Trump please card. do always. You're, uh, the, you're actually not even the first guest to do that's that. True. You're the second. That's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. Helen Andrews uh, has done it before. Did anyone else? No, I think that's I think not that's yet. it. Yeah. But hey, I my first recording back from paternity leave. I'll bring. Yeah, I'll bring the baby. Absolutely. We can. Yep. It's going to be great. Um, Well, John, thank you for coming on the show. 
We hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, keep up with everything that John is doing via Twitter, where you will see some piping hot takes and all the fantastic stuff that he's writing. Be sure to rate and review the backlog of this podcast. Five stars only, please. Uh, we're well over 80 uh, long-form episodes here, well over 100 hours of content, maybe edging uh, close to 200 now, all things considered. Uh, we love doing the show. We're very grateful that all of you watch and listen every week. Uh, share it with your friends, rate and review, uh, and check out the backlog of the show, and we'll see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Hey.